0: The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. One of the the first times that, uh, I was at a chapel at the university, I'm a professor at, one of my friends preached in chapel, and he preached on Sabbath, which is what Andy told me to preach on. And, and so, um, and, um, and I'd, I'd, I'd been friends with this guy for a while, but I, you know, when you're friends with somebody, you don't really sit down over tea and go, Hey, so what do you think about Sabbath? Nobody does that as a general rule, right? I mean, even, even guys like me, I mean, unless I'm talking to another, if it's geek to geek, right? Another professor and, uh, then, then we talk about things that like you would just glaze over, uh, you know, and boredom for. But I, I never, I never heard him talk. And he, it was amazing to me that he kind of launched into this discussion on Sabbath. Um, from the vantage point of uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the almost unrelenting work schedule of Americans and uh, the psychoanalytic uh, approach to, to, to being a full human of rest and things like this. And, and that was all he talked about the entire time, was just the concept of Sabbath being built for physical rest. I was really fascinated by that, and afterwards I talked to him and asked him, so where did that? I mean, do you do you think that there's more? I mean, if you want to believe that, that's fine. It's, it's right. but you think, do, do you think there's more? He went, no, no, no. And he quoted the Old Testament to me, you know, which is always find slightly irritating. Uh, but, but but people, you know, do that to me. Like, Don't you know the Bible, Jeff? And and, and they hit me with it. And so and so, uh, and so I, I said I said, okay, that's fine. We, we we talked. I walked away from the conversation, thinking I, I've never really sat down and thought about. how thick and powerful the concept of Sabbath is until I heard my friend present it in a really thin way. And then I started looking back at it. And so I'm I'm thrilled to be able to talk with you a bit about today. There seem to be really only two direct references in the epistles to the Sabbath. Uh, And the reason I start in the epistles, just uh, uh, what what I'll do is I'll start in the New Testament. I'll, 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 I'll take a glancing blow at, um, at the Sabbath uh, passage that Andy's going to preach next week, but I'm going to try not to steal any of his thunder. Uh, and uh, then I'll jump back into the Old Testament where I belong, and, and, uh, and, and, I'll, and I'll work from there. Um, there's two particular texts, and those texts are helpful for us. One is Colossians 2.16, where Paul, who is addressing... People who are, it could easily be uh, commentators are a little bit up in the air about they could be dealing with Judaizers, which was sort of a constant group of people that were drawing Christians sort of back into first century Palestinian Judaism, uh, pulling them away from the hope in Christ and pushing them back into having to do what all religions kind of do. Just, uh, yeah, We'll give you rules, you follow these rules, and then you'll be accepted by God. Christianity, of course, radically different from that. You are profoundly and eternally accepted by God, and therefore now you live out these rules, right? It's a very, very different idea. And so, uh, and so Paul is probably dealing with people like this, and he says this in chapter 2, verse 16, no, no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. And so, and so Paul says, right out of the gate, Paul, raised a Jew, says, this is not something that you're judged for. You know, if you, you don't get, nobody gets to point at you and say, you're a lousy Christian because... And then it has something to do with Sabbath. And so the writer of Hebrews, what sounds like, and, and a kind of a, a turn in chapter 4, says this, So then, there now remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Say, oh, which is it? Is it, uh, is it that you can't, you, you can't get judged for this? Or, if there is one... Do you get judged for this? And so, of course, the, the, the answer to that is de- deciding on what it is the writer of Hebrews is talking about. First couple of chapters of the book of Hebrews unpacks the supremacy of Jesus. Jesus is supreme over the angels, supreme over all of the characters in the Old Testament. He is, in fact, God Almighty in the flesh. And, and, um, and, and, and the writer of Hebrews takes... Uh, some of the highest God talk in the Old Testament and applies it to Jesus. Psalm 110, Psalm 102, all of these uh, you know, quoted, Jesus is in fact the Lord who created all things. They will wa- cause sort of roll up like a garment and be put away, but not him. He's eternal. Uh, he's called Lord in uh, and, and, and a way that uh, you only address God. Uh, and, and, and so the writer of Hebrews unpacks this, and then he begins in chapter three, verse seven, and he makes a run all the way to about chapter four, verse 11, and he gives a mini theology Of how Israel really blew it, like really failed. And it's interesting because it feeds into the concept of the Sabbath. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 reads, Beginning uh, like this Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That phrase right there appears three times in the book of Hebrews. Pretty important to that guy. He wants his readers to hear this testimony from the Old Testament. Do not harden your hearts in the day of uh, of the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. And therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they will always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. And that's a key word, rest. The wilderness generation is pretty key and that reference is key because of where it lands back in the old testament we'll get there in a second but but this is incredible how does the sabbath r- relate to this somehow because the sabbath shows up in the next chapter but that's what causes an entire thought beginning in chapter 3 verse 7 all the way to 4 uh, verse 11 and in and, and paul says or the writer of hebrews rather says hey listen there's still a sabbath rest for the people of god so strive for it so with that in mind, I'm going to say something here, and I want you to repeat it back to me. It's going to sound so brutally legalistic that someone will probably have to sit on Massimo. Uh, and, and, but but here, here you go. You say it after me. Those who practice Sabbath, Those who practice Sabbath. Enter, Sabbath. enter Sabbath. There we go. Those who practice Sabbath enter Sabbath. Like I said, that sounds totally legalistic. I promise you, I'm no legalist, not even a, not even a tiny bit. And so, and so what does this mean? Well, this is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say: is what What was it about the, this particular generation that caused them to harden their heart? If you go back through chapter three, Andy, will unpack next next week. You'll see that the very root of all of this, of every one of their rebellions, of all their disobedience, was unbelief. It was unbelief, and so to not practice Sabbath, to not enter into God's rest is to enter into the place where all people enter who don't believe. And to enter into God's rest is to enter into a place reserved for people who do believe. And Sabbath is the, this thick idea that goes up in, in, in uh, Hebrews 4. So what is it? What is Sabbath? Well, first of all, what is it not? Um, I don't think that what this means, that there's still a Sabbath rest, means that you're still supposed to take Friday sundown to Saturday sundown and take it off and not do anything. Um, and I'll show you in a minute why I don't think that that, that really makes a difference. Uh, or I don't think it transfers into Sunday. <clears throat> it's, it's really intriguing. Romans 14, Colossians 2, both Paul comments very clearly that worshiping and observing days is just not an issue in Christianity. Acts chapter 15, where the Council of Jerusalem is sort of laying out the rules for Gentiles, don't even mention the Sabbath. And of course, Jesus torpedoes first century Palestinian Judaism's use of the Sabbath over and over again. So what I don't think it is, is a, 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 an instruction on, hey, hey, there's still, you still need to keep up with this day. So something thicker than that. And it's attached to Hebrews 3, 7, uh, with this business of not believing, What is it then that a Sabbath is? Well, I think that the Sabbath does a few different things. First of all, uh, and you can jot this down, Sabbath in the Old Testament is a sign in Israel of God's unprecedented power, goodness, provision, and promise. I'll say it again for those of you taking notes. Sabbath is a sign, a weekly sign in Israel of God's unprecedented power, goodness, provision, and promise. That's what it meant for them to take off. And and there's, there's several texts, there's three texts that I really want to focus on. The first one is Exodus chapter 16. The reason I focus on Exodus 16 is because it's the very first time that Sabbath appears in the Bible. Now, most of you say, whoa, 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 Jeff, it's Genesis, right? Uh, nope, sorry. That's where the word rest, the verb form, shows up. But the word Sabbath for Israel doesn't show up in Genesis. God's rest becomes the pattern of the paradigm of, of the rest of the covenant people. But covenant rest shows up first in Exodus 16. So in Exodus 16, if you, uh, if you flip over there real quickly with me, I will uh, I'll just read just a, a, just a little piece of it for us. So Exodus 16. Let me set the set the uh, the table here for you. So they've just come out of Egypt. They have dominated. Uh, uh, they've seen Israel or Egypt rather dominated by God. They've passed through the the Red Sea. They're into the wilderness and they begin to grumble and complain that God won't feed them. That he's, you know, they say, oh, it was better better when we were in Egypt. I mean, I don't know we were enslaved and everything, but at least we had food. And so so Moses gets irritated. God gets irritated. God says, fine, I'm going to give you food. And so he establishes this daily provision for them. And at the end of the week, they do something that no one else in the ancient Near East does. Listen to this. On the sixth day, they gather twice as much bread, beginning in verse 22. This is their experience of this. They gather twice as much bread, two omers each. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you'll bake, boil what you'll boil, and all that's left over lay aside to be kept till morning. Now, If you read above that, you'll realize that in every other day, nothing could be kept over. There was no leftovers at all. But here, this is left over, stays till morning. They laid it aside, and the next morning, verse 24, it didn't stink, and there were no worms in it. That's That's good news. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you gather it, But on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. So here's what they did. In the ancient Near East, this was the only group of people that I know of in any literature anywhere that on one day out of every week, they did nothing and still ate. No one in the ancient Near East did that. If you were going to eat in the ancient world, you got up early, you started making food, you started going out hunting and gathering, you started doing all that, this, this was necessary. This is not like, uh, I mean, I live in California, so if I got up one day and just decided, you know, I don't want to go lecture at the university today. I just turn on the TV and, I, and the entire Mission Impossible series is on Netflix, so I think I'm just going to pour a massive bag of Doritos on my chest and sit on the... The the couch and just watch and eat. You know what would happen? I would get, I mean, I would get yelled at if if that got out. But, 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 um, but I would still get paid. I'd still, I mean, I'm tenured. So, you know, I get paid anyway. And so I would still get paid. And I would eat fine. Obviously, with Doritos, I'm not eating anything good for me, but still I'm eating, right? No big deal. But in the ancient world, that never happened except in Israel. Every single week, Israel would wake up on the seventh day and they would look at one another and they would say, he must be more amazing than any other God has ever thought about being because he gives us food from heaven and we eat and we're filled and we do nothing to get it. It's a remarkable idea. uh, I think a lot of people have, have it in their mind that the Sabbath for Israel was like a worship day, like we're doing here. Well, it really wasn't. It was a sign day. It was a day where they would get up and they would sit. Now, in that sense, it's like what we're doing. But it was a remarkable day, and it reminded them of God's provision and His power. The next day uh, would be, um, the next reference anyway is Exodus chapter 20. And Exodus chapter 20 uh, references Genesis 2 uh, and, and its command to, for, uh, for Israel to keep uh, the Sabbath. And, uh, and, and this particular uh, command is really significant because of its reference to, um, to the creation account. Verse 8 Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you'll do, uh, you will labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath through the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, neither you nor your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourners within your gate. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the Sabbath, and therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy." Two things about this that are important, Number one is the fact that it reflects what happened in Exodus 16. It's meant for the entire community, not just the Israelites, so it's not an ethnic thing. It is everybody, a sojourner, a stranger, an alien. These are three sort of technical terms in the Old Testament that simply mean landless people. They don't belong ethnically to Israel, but they're floating around with them, and they also are to celebrate this. They also... Are to say, okay, fine, so we don't get up and do work tomorrow? And nope, you don't get up and do work tomorrow. And, and they still eat. And of course, it was a, a kind of incumbent upon Israel to feed them and to care for them. Uh, you get that in Deuteronomy a little bit later because they would, themselves were sojourners in Egypt at one time. But they, they experience this testimony, this testimony, ongoing testimony of manna ongoing testimony of generosity, ongoing testimony of the livingness and the power and the provision of God. It's a thick idea. That's a thick idea. And on top of that, it references back, the second thing here, references back to Genesis 2.2. In the ancient Near East, there are so many creation stories, it's hard to keep up. Um, it, just in Egypt alone, there were at least half a dozen that, we've, that we found on paper, and, and, and they all kind of are the same. They all have a whole bunch of gods, and a whole bunch of gods, when you get a whole bunch of gods in a room, then there's going to be a problem, right? It's Because uh, somebody's going to want to be the top god, and if they're all gods, they probably all want to be the top god. And so what happens in the ancient world always happens. They fight. They go into this cataclysmic battle, and one god emerges on the top. And they end up killing all the other gods and using their bodies to create, things like that. And then after they get done creating, they sit. That's the idea. And so the idea of a god sitting after creating in the ancient world, and this would have been in the, sort of the cultural mindset of Israel, meant that that god was now in charge over all that he had done battle over and things like that. So Israel writes a creation story. And their creation story, there is no god that fights this god. Now, that doesn't only speak to what you and I would naturally believe that there's no such thing as any other gods, but also in the ancient world in Israel, it would have said there is no competition for this God. No God stands up to this God. He is incomparable. He is unprecedented in his absolute sovereignty. And God speaks everything into creation. And then he rests. He rests because now he sits in absolute sovereignty over everything. Material, temporal, functional, everything. No other God did that. No other God just speaks, and it all comes into being, without any contest. So the Sabbath became this moment in Israel's uh, sort of DNA where they remembered the sovereign power of God, and they remembered the sovereign provision of God. But not just that. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, you get the next um, uh, sort of law for the Sabbath, the retelling of the Ten Commandments. And in that retelling, uh, Moses emphasizes not creation, but the Exodus. Now, I, I could bore you for a long time Talking to, to you about why I think this is, uh, because I, uh, I but but I won't uh, because uh, Becca has told me I only have a limited space to talk, and, and so I, I learned a long time ago to listen to my wife and daughters when it comes to this kind of thing. So so uh, so uh, but but this is uh, this is our text. Verse 12 of Deuteronomy 5 Observe the Sabbath day, keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you will labor, do all your work. The seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, nor your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your ox, your donkey, or any livestock, or the sojourners within your gates, that your male servant and female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an an outstretched arm. And therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So there you go. You've got redemption. Not only do you have creation, not only you have the ongoing provision of God, but now you've got the redemption of God. The Exodus in the Old Testament is the... And I, mean, I, I know we would think it would be creation, right? Because, you know, I mean, just Philosophically speaking, the idea of speaking everything into existence seems like it would be the, that would be the, the big sine qua non of power, right? But it's not. In the, in, the, in the Old Testament, it's the Exodus. It's the Exodus. Um, I, uh, I, I wrote this down from this author. As to why he thought that this was such a powerful idea, he says the Exodus is the most powerful idea in the Bible because it dismantles. I love that verb. It dismantles the way all people look at their gods. This is—I'll just quote him: Moses dismantled the religion of static triumphalism by exposing the gods and showing, in fact, that they had no power and were not gods. And thus the mythical legitimacy of Pharaoh's social world is destroyed. For it is shown that such a regime appeals only to sanctions that in fact do not exist. The mythic claims of Pharaoh's empire are ended by the disclosure of the alternative religion of the freedom of God. I would say that would be better. I understand the holiness of God. In the place of the gods of Egypt... Simple creatures of imperial consciousness. All that means is that the gods were just simple extensions of politics. I don't know how that resonates with you here in Malaysia, but in America, that sounds crazy, scary, familiar. Uh, the, the, uh, simply the extension of politics. This is in the place of the gods, creatures of imperial consciousness, just simply extension of power and politics. Moses discloses that Yahweh, the sovereign one who acts in absolute freedom, is extrapolated from no social reality and is captive of no social perception, but acts on his own for his own purpose. And that is what makes Sabbath so powerful. The redemption of God is the power of God that fuels and gives a a pattern for Sabbath. The creation of God is the power of God that fuels and gives a pattern for Sabbath. And the goodness and provision of God is also that which gives pattern for Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath is the command in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Israel was to do this routinely. And it was so serious that if you didn't do it, you would die. Now, so one, of the, uh, one of the fun things about teaching at a university, particularly in, in America, is I teach gen ed classes. In gen ed classes, I have loads of, yeah, maybe about 120, 130 students in the room, and about 60, 70% of them are not Christians. And so they'll read something like Numbers 15, if you don't remember what Numbers 15 is. There's a kid in there, and he's and they kill him for breaking the Sabbath because he's picking up sticks. <laughs> and so you know, when you read this, I mean, even when I read it, after all these days, I read that, I go, wow, man, that's weighty for picking up sticks. And I'll, I'll have some kid who'll raise his hand in class and go, hey, uh, Dr. Mooney, what was he doing with those sticks? And I mean, it's got to be something more, right? And, uh, and, and so I always laugh. I go, this is, this is what you don't get, right? Violating the Sabbath was looking at God and saying, I don't believe in your power. I don't believe in your provision. I don't believe in your goodness. I don't believe that you can continue to redeem. All you have to do is just read the Old Testament. Israel struggled with that their entire existence. But this is a flagrant denial in front of everyone. This wasn't small. This was actually quite huge. This was looking to the king and telling him that he fell short. So when you go back just a little bit in Exodus 17, and you see that Israel does this. And then go to Numbers 14, where, where Moses says that Israel does this at least 10 times before God says, fine, 40 years, I'll kill all of this generation. Nobody goes into the land. In other words, you have non-Sabbathed me. You have, you have disregarded my Sabbaths over and over and over, so you don't go into the land. Remember, those who practice Sabbath, enter Sabbath. The writer of Hebrews says, after rehearsing all that, and saying to them, this is what happened to that previous generation. They refused to believe over and over and over and over and over again the power and the provision and the goodness of God. They didn't enter. But there's still a Sabbath rest for you to enter. And so this is, this is what you see all throughout the, the New Testament. Our New Testament writers looking at Christians or people who profess to be Christians and say, okay, fine, this is true. It's true. Justification by faith, absolutely the most true thing of all true things to be said. You are not just simply forgiven because being forgiven says, you may go, you're fine, but you're justified. You come in. You're you're, you're at the heart of the Father. It's amazing. But then those who profess to be justified, writers look at them and go, there is still a Sabbath rest to enter. Living the Christian life out is one that you have to do intentionally. You don't walk the aisle, say the prayer, and then just ride the wave wherever it takes you. It's an intentional life. Rest is intentional. So, um, as illustration, when, when uh, Becca was a little kid, relax, Becca, it's not about you. When Becca was a little kid, um, we were, I was doing my, my, uh, my doctorate in Kentucky, and um, and, 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 the school that I was at had this massive pool and this massive kiddie pool. Becca was a very, very good kid, very sort rule follower. Yeah. And she was great until she wasn't that kind of kid. Yeah. And, 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 uh, but as a general rule, it's characterized by rule following. And so she would wait at the, the side of the pool and I would get the water wings, you know, and put her water wings on and she would put it in each water wing and then she would get in the pool and she would play in the exact spot in the pool where she was supposed to be, things like that. Becca's got an older brother. He's not that way. And so as I'm sliding on this one, uh, one event, I'm sliding uh, uh, the water wings on Becca, I hear all the way down the, across the pool, hey, Dad! And I turn around and look, and my son, who's only a year older than Becca, Becca is like maybe three at the time, Jonathan's four, Jonathan does not know how to swim, and he's bouncing up and down on the three-meter board. And and there's like 17 feet of water beneath him. And I just like, I lose all the oxygen in my body. I like, what are you doing? And, and, and and I look at back and I say, you got to stay here. I was like, Jonathan. And Jonathan's like bounces one time and just goes off, off of the, uh, off of the board. And so I sprint across the, you know, the, the pool. The teenage kid who's, you know, lifeguarding big air quotes there goes, don't run, right, he did not even see the kid, yeah, all the, and, 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 and uh, I, I go sprinting down, and dive into the water, and, and uh, grab Jonathan, and pull him back up, and Jonathan like, sp- you know, he spits the water out of his mouth, he goes, let's do it again, Hey, <laughs> climbs back up, you know what, I, I, I use this illustration all the time, because I think it really does fit, you know what Jonathan was doing, he was resting, John was not, John did not think, I'm going to jump in the water, and then I'm going to really try hard this time to get to the top. He didn't even have a concept of getting to the top. He was just jumping into the water. And so, but you know why? He jumped in the water with literally no fear whatsoever. It's because he knew I was there. He knew I was going to be in the water. He knew knew I was going to be there. He knew I was going to have him. He knew I was going to pull him back up. So, I'll just jump. That's a great life. It's a really great life, and that's a life to the life that the writer of Hebrews is urging the people to, to live here. That's rest. Rest is active. It's not. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not. A, it's not a passive idea. It's you throwing yourself off into the mission of God because you know that the heart of God and the hand of God will surely catch you. He's already done so with the work of Christ. So real quickly, how do we celebrate the Sabbath? How many minutes do I have at Massimo? Or am I out of time officially already? I can go? Okay, fantastic. Bucket's back, I can go. <clears throat> and, uh, so um, so how, how do we celebrate? Here's, what, here's one. I've, I've, got, I've got four ways to celebrate, and I'm not going to lie. One way has like four subways. So, so uh, I'm going to try to get through this quick. First of all, celebrate the Sabbath together. The writer of Hebrews says... There is still a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So you do this together. Christianity is the thing that we live together. We live this out together. So this is why when we pray, when Jesus taught us how to pray, he did not say, This is how you pray pray, my Father who is in heaven. He said, Pray, our Father who is in heaven. We are supposed to be doing this together. So as you celebrate Sabbath, as you celebrate rest from your work to rely upon the gracious work and powerful work of God, as you relax and throw yourself onto God with absolute abandon because you believe in His power and His goodness and His provision, do it together. Do it together. Second, do everything you can to fan into flame your faith. Do everything you can to fan into flame your faith. I love the idea of fanning this into flame because faith, or, or, or Sabbath, Sabbath is, is this idea that those people, like I've kept, I, I keep on using those who practice Sabbath, inner Sabbath, it's those whose hearts who, who rest, those who throw themselves confidently onto the work of Christ. And under the promise of God. Those people enter into God's rest. Those people so do that. What do you do that would fan into flame faith? I would I would I would get a copy of your liturgy every week and I would sing these great songs throughout the week or find the songs that do draw you to Jesus each week or, 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 or the books that you might read or the speakers that you might hear on, uh, on podcasts. Anything that draws you and fans your faith into flame. Second, cling to God's word. Cling to God's word. Uh, next week, Andy will probably touch on this, but the, the warning in the scriptures is to cling to God's word in chapter 4. That's those people who enter God's rest are those people who hold on to God's Word. Those are the, those are the people that do that. God's Word is the testimony that in the counter-narrative to all the other narratives that you're given. Um, I'll have people sometimes periodically ask me, um, so do I need to go to church? And I always look at them and go, oh, yeah. I say, of course you do. I say, I, I, I feel like I need to go to church. And I probably know the Bible better than most average people. But, I, but, I, but I, I still feel really necessary to go to church, to be sitting beside people and hearing brothers and sisters sing and hearing brothers and sisters confess and answer catechism questions and taking the Lord's table where I'm holding the elements that preach to me. Here's the goodness of God. Here's the power of God right here. Broken body, poured out blood, resurrected Jesus. Here's the power and the goodness of God. Whatever it is I'm going through, that doesn't determine the goodness of God. Here's the goodness of God. And now this shapes and reshapes what I'm going through. Or all the narratives that I'm given in the United States, or that you're probably given here in Malaysia, from everything from movies to pop music to politics and everything else. Here's the narrative We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. This is the, that's the narrative. That's the real narrative. So cling to God's word, come to church. Memorize the songs that your heart uh, um, believes, uh, th- that cause your heart to believe God's goodness. Here's another one. Rehearse the gospel. Rehearse the gospel. I've got uh, one of our church members. Um, he suffers from a significant just um, uh, anxiety attacks. And um, this guy is a brilliant guy. And uh, one of, uh, just one of the, the most top shelf young men I've ever been affiliated with. But he really suffers significantly from this. Every single morning, every single morning, he's a super disciplined guy. Every single morning he gets up and on the back of his door, before he opens his door, is the gospel written out. And he reads it. And he reminds himself that he is profoundly loved by God. That God has rescued him, called him out of darkness and into light, has drawn him to his heart, and he rests. That's a great way. Rehearse the gospel to yourself. Number three, God always, uh, God strengthens us through the fellowship of community with other Christians. Paul says in Galatians 6, carry each other's burdens. Carry each other's burdens. I don't know what that means here. In the United States, and um, a Redeemer, we, we, we relearned what that meant back in 2020 to carry burdens of our brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters who didn't look like us, were, that, that we sang with all the time, that we had no idea we were even carrying burdens. And we carried them for them, learning to carry them for them. And then lastly, and this would have been important to first century Christians, prepare to endure suffering. Prepare to endure suffering. Those people who really believe that they can throw themselves off the three-meter board into the heart of God, they don't particularly care what's in the water with them. They don't care how deep the water is. They will endure because they trust. That comes from doing that over and over and over again. It comes from, from having that rooted in your heart anyway. It comes from seeing Jesus as so profoundly good that he's worth losing everything and everything for, everyone for. That's Sabbath. The keeping of Sabbath is clinging to the work of Jesus and releasing any hope in your own. The work of Sabbath is resting in the power and the provision and the goodness of God over and over and over again. People who do that don't do it legalistically. I've watched people try and it never works. People who do that are people who've already been affected deeply by the power of the Spirit and the work of grace. And it's simply a response to the work of God. I pray that that will mark your church. And I hope that you pray that it marks us back home at Redeemer. Father, in the name of Christ, I thank you for these brothers and sisters and ask that as we move towards the supper. And Father, that as we hold the elements in our hand, that we will, we will rehearse the gospel to ourselves and remind ourselves that here in our hands, not what's happening in our lives, not what's happening in our family's lives, not what's happening in the world, but here in our hands is the goodness of God. Here is the power of God. And I pray that you would instill within us faith that we may continue to rest in that in the name of Jesus amen thank you for listening to this message we invite you to learn more about gospel city church at gospelcitychurch.my